raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. So if you follow me on Instagram, then you know that I have announced my dates for the I Be Knowing Tour. Yes, I'm hitting the road with Stand Up and Smart Funny and Black, and tickets are now on sale. Go to smartfunnyandblack.com backslash schedule to find out when I'm coming to your city, get your tickets, and show love. I've got some real special stuff going on aside from doing stand-up all over the nation. I'm also doing a special three-night residency at the Kennedy Center with my show Mo Better Woo, where I take jazz and combine it with Wu-Tang Records, Stand Up, and Smart Funny and Black. We have our first Smart Funny and Black LA show going down April 20th right here in Los Angeles at the Novo. And we've got a lot of other dope stuff happening. Along with that, look out for free Smart Funny and Black masterclasses happening in random cities throughout this tour. So we've got a lot of good stuff coming your way. Make sure to go to smartfunnyandblack.com backslash schedule to see how you can get in on the goodness. I hear a lot of people that'll be like, oh, I, I can just stand up because they're funny at their friend's house. You need to listen to this episode. Side effects of being a comedian. Listen. I will also hear people who are like, that's the hardest profession in the world. I'm not arguing with you. It's not for everybody. And it requires a certain level of skill. And it requires a certain countenance. And it's just really like a commitment. You can't dabble at being a comedian or being a comic. You got to really commit to it. We're in an era where we've got a lot of folks who are doing comedy in different spaces, whether it's on internet or as an actress, but this episode is specifically about when I talk about being a stand-up comedian, because being a stand-up comedian is its own special type of skill and mindset. And that's what we're going to get into. Let's drop a jam. Jam dropping. Jam dropping. Jam dropping. We're dropping on these hoes. <laughs> Today's jam dropping is Jester. Versus comedian. Amanda, what do you mean? A jester is someone that exists in the court. Back in the old, 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 old days to make the king laugh. Yes. We are at a place right now where some people think that if you just make people laugh, that makes you a comedian. And I'm sorry, but the reality is, is that there's more to it. Clowns make people laugh. Mimes make people laugh. There's many ways to make people laugh, but that doesn't make you a comedian, specifically a stand-up comedian. A comedian is somebody who is applying wordplay, who is utilizing uh, the skill of awareness with a unique voice 
to make something funny. They are basically taking unfunny things and turning them into funny things. They are not simply just doing dumb shit to make you laugh. It's the difference between being silly and being funny. Being silly is just someone laughing at you. A comedian, they're laughing with you. That is the big difference. And when you do these open mics, you have folks who think they're comedians that are actually jesters. Because they're really basically just on stage acting a fool. And because people think it's funny, they think I'm a comedian. No. No. They're They're laughing laughing at you. A jester was there to make everybody laugh by them being stupid and foolish and silly. There's a difference. When you're a comedian, what you're doing is pulling people into your space and saying, come into my world of humor. Come into my den of comedy. Den sounds very scary. But it's about creating a space that's your own humor and welcoming people into that space. Whereas a jester is going into other people's space and bringing the ha-has to them no matter how they can do it. And it, it really does require an important difference. Because if you're listening to this and you're saying, how can I succeed as a comedian? The first thing that you have to do is figure out what is your space of funny? How is it decorated? What does it look like? What, what welcomes people into it? And you have to decide, like, is that where you want to be? Because sometimes we've built a space of funny that isn't really natural. That really isn't like the hot shit. And it's hard to keep that up. So you have to ask yourself, are you a jester or are you a comedian? Are you getting people to laugh at you or are you welcoming people to laugh with you? We're serving it. We got some DMs. First question, have you ever doubted your funny? Any comedian who says that they've never doubted their funny is full of shit. I think maybe Dave Chappelle and Jerry Seinfeld are like the only two. Everybody else has absolutely at some point been like, ooh, I don't know. At a certain point, it's not that you doubt that you're funny, you doubt your material. And this is coming from someone who is a baby comedian. I've only been doing stand-up for five years. So there's going to be comedians who listen to this and are like, who the fuck is she to be doing a whole episode about being a comedian? I am a comedian, but I'm a baby comedian. So my perspectives may change when I do this episode five years from now. But to where I'm at right now, as an accomplished yet baby comedian, I can tell you that I haven't really doubted my funny as much as I've doubted my material. And I think that's the thing. It's like, I always knew I was funny, but to be a comic, you have to have material. And it's not always easy, and you're not always able to translate a funny concept into a funny joke. And that takes time, and it takes patience that a lot of us don't have. And, you know, you have to learn your style. Like, I would say, like, I learned quickly, like, oh, you're you're not not good good at writing jokes on down, like, on paper. I'll write the premise, but it's going to have to come through the workout on stage. And, y'all, that's unfucking comfortable. That takes, like, a certain level of confidence. I remember Chris Rock once told me I was unflappable. I was like, what does that mean? He was like, you're unflappable because he was like, you know, not all of your jokes are getting all the laughs, but it doesn't shake you up. Like, you still just forge forward because you know that it's a part of a bigger overarching concept and you don't need to get a laugh on every joke and 
I really appreciated that. And that has come to be very helpful for me in working out my material, being unflappable. Because sometimes, even if they didn't laugh at that, you still can look at it and figure out how to get them to laugh at it. It may mean tweaking a word. It may mean choosing a different order of how you say things. And that's where the work comes in for me as a comic, is figuring out how to not let the technicality take away from my, my organic funny. And that's what I was almost doing with my special because when it came down to the wire, I was getting very surgical with it and Stan Lathan was the one who was like, no, you are not that kind of comedian. Your comedy comes in letting loose. So, you know, I'll tell you right now that I'm working on new material and I've absolutely been like, wow, this <laughs> is uncomfortable, uncomfortable. Next question. Have you been in a situation where a humorous disposition got you into some trouble, affected people you care for in a negative way? For example, when situations are in realms of serious shit like loss slash grief and the like. Empathy exists, but in the expression, sometimes things are lost in translation or response time and style. What did you do slash learn? Well, I think this is an interesting question because as a comic, like that's your natural place to go is to like figure out how to make something a joke and that can definitely like turn people sideways I mean I was in a situation with someone where their dick couldn't get hard and I tried to uh you know just try to make light of it and make them feel you know calm about it and it made them freak the fuck out and start screaming at me and yelling at me and telling me that I was crazy and that I was a shitty person I'm, I'm talking, talking about, about Tajay and they like literally went insane on me y'all like little I thought I was gonna get hit I mean they went absolutely bonkers and they blamed it on you're making a joke out of something serious well you know the joke is that your dick not getting hard really isn't that serious to me you know it's like it's life like shit happens like things don't go the way we plan and you know I'm trying to make it like light because I want the person to know that like I'm not viewing them differently I'm not judging them I'm not like disappointed it's like oh well you know, shit happens. We all arrive at Spaghetti Junction ever so often. It's just what it is. But if you're especially dealing with someone who's insecure about something and you make a joke and you're making it to make light, you're literally trying to make it make light of their insecurity. If the insecurity is already there, a lot of times there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. Um, I remember when I got in a car accident in Togo and we were in the pickup truck driving back or driving to where there was no hospital. So we had to drive to a military base. We're in the back of the pickup truck and we're like driving under the cover of night. <sighs> wow, that sounded like the beginning of a film. Like, like a track. Like it just down with the, the stage directions at the beginning of a film. In the back of a pickup truck. We drove over the cover of night. And I was just like, I was in my head because I, for a second I felt like, damn, I feel really alone right now because the people I was with were brother and sister and they had each other and I was just like on the other side of the pickup truck and I just felt like, damn, like what if I had been seriously hurt right now? I mean, they would have looked out, I guess, but like I feel like really alone. And then in that moment though, I also remembered that usually I'm the strongest person in the situation just because I feel like because of my humor. And so I ended up like making light of the, of the situation by bringing jokes into it. And I think in that scenario, like me being able to find the funny is what alleviated like the obvious seriousness that was happening. But actually, I mean, it didn't alleviate it, but it gave us a respite from the seriousness that was taking place. Um, and I think we all like appreciated that. So for the most part, I would say the comedy has, has helped me, you know, whether it's 
dealing with death or dealing with frustrating scenarios. I mean, I was in the hospital earlier this year and it's like, you're stressed out about it for a second and then it just becomes like, okay. okay. It is hilarious that the person in the bed next to me has had to say the word penis 75 times. Like, we can all acknowledge that this is hilarious. He's also a Latinx man who has a very strong accent. So he's saying penis. So this is also hilarious. So then there are also, like, very, like, like, there's, like, six different individuals who keep having to come in his, like, space and ask about his penis. So you have one doctor who, like, talks like this. So he says, okay, let's talk about your penis. You saying you have a catheter still in your penis? You you have the okay. Then you have the nurse. She's like, "Sir, I'm going to check your penis. I'm going to look at your penis now. How does the penis feel?" Then you have the resident who had started and he's like, "Hi, I'm Paul. So I'd like to look at your penis." So like in those moments, it's like my humor helped me with my seriousness because I was like really worried and like concerned. But penis was being said in like several different inflections just repeatedly in a cor- over next to a curtain next to me. And even though it's like low hanging fruit comedy, I mean, it's like one step above fart jokes. You take what you can get sometimes. Penis. Next question. I watched Neil Brennan's Breakfast Club interview and he was talking about when comics make fun of horrible shit like R. Kelly. I'm a huge fan of comedy, and I know it's necessary to laugh, especially for black people. We need that shit to survive. For that reason, a lot of folks will say comedy and comedians are off limits when it comes to offending folks. My question for you is, where's the line in comedy when it comes to making fun of something terrible and perpetuating negative things like Kevin Hart's homophobic jokes? How do you as a comedian toe the line, or do you? Well, first of all, you have to understand that, like, I have a high level of awareness and compassion and empathy. That's just built into my character. So my jokes come out of what I know and who I am. So because those are things that are very clear cut in who I am, they don't find their way outside of my jokes. Like my jokes are not like this departure from who I am. That being said, I'm not saying that those people who do that are not those things, but I think a lot of times there are folks, especially when you're when you're new as a comic, where you're just kind of grasping at straws for your voice. And there is this like unfortunate, but really real trend of people thinking that the best way to be funny is to offend people. Find the way to tease somebody, you know, make somebody else the brunt of the joke. And unfortunately, a lot of times they make yourself the brunt of a joke. Right. So I told that line by simply just like, if if it's gonna if if it's gonna cost me hurting feelings to get laughs, it's not worth it. Now, some people are like, "Well, Amanda, that makes no sense because you hurt white people's feelings when you make fun of white people." And I'm like, "There's a caveat. If it's gonna cost me making someone feel like demeaned, and the thing is that you shouldn't feel demeaned about demeaning other people." So when I address like white bullshit, I am addressing the act of demeaning and oppressing other people. So if that makes you feel bad, then that's That's your own shit. shit. But like if I was on here talking about fat jokes, if I was on here making jokes about trans people, if I was on here thinking it was funny to make 
make uh, make light of or to disassociate the value of, you know, LGBTQ lives like from other lives. That's not funny to me because it is more about the offense than the joke. To me, the joke has to be funnier than the offensiveness. There's a there's an example I always give. Jordan Rivers once said, you know, Michelle Obama is an incredibly dressed woman. I mean, she's probably the best dressed woman in the White House since Jackie O. We should call her Blackie O. Now, some are listening right now and are like, that bitch. That shit was funny, yo. That shit was hella funny. And I know, yeah, it's racist, but that shit was funny. <laughs> and I know some of you all are like, Amanda, you are full of shit. I can't believe you would co-sign that. Da, 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 da. That shit was funny. <laughs> the comic in me. So that's the other thing as a comic. There's certain shit where y'all who aren't comics will be like, that is disrespectful. That is offensive. I will not stand for it. But the comic in you is like, nah, that shit was funny though. That shit was funny, though. I mean, there's times when people say shit to me. I was once told that my kneecaps look like Patrick Hewen. Now, some might find that very offensive. That, that shit was, was funny, funny, yo. I couldn't even, like, be mad. And this was said to me like he was trying to offend me. He, this was said to me within the mix of a barrage of tweets or, like, comments in a post where people were trying to demean me. And he said, my kneecaps look like Patrick Ewing. And I was like, you win. I would also, by the way, been told that my kneecaps look like the Lorax. Also accurate. Next question. How do you do when the crowd doesn't respond like you anticipated? Well, that's what I was saying. I think it's not about how do I do, it's what do you do? Because how do I do is I just keep going. But in your head, what do you do is very important. And I think it's what drives a lot of people to drink because you, you could feel real lonely on the stage when you really thought that shit was going to hit and it, it did, did not. not. And all of a sudden it's just like, where do we go from here? This is the life I'm longing to live. Don't you think it's kind of crazy that Madonna was Evita? And now she has ass injections. Right? Because it's like, that's a leap. And part of me wants to say it's impressive. Because that's like you lived several lives in one life. But also, like, someone who cannot sing. She makes great songs. She makes great songs. But we can all agree that Broadway requires great singers. And, you know, Madonna ain't got, like, Broadway chops. You know, like, I mean... She sang, she was in Evita. They, I mean, like Antonia Banderas was there. Babyface sang Back Up on her song. Remember that song? I've always been in love with you. You know it too. I used to love Take a Bow. You took my love and it why? And it was a fine ass matador. 
in the video. A fine-ass matador. Just bejeweled with a toro. It was good. But I, every so often I think about that fact. Especially, I don't know if anyone saw Madonna's ass lately. But it's, it's an entity that lives outside of her. It's, it's really not even an ass. It's orbiting her. It's just orbiting her body. And I wonder, when you make such an egregious change, are you able to manage that in life? Like when she's in an aisle on a flight, you know, does she struggle now because she's not accustomed to what's happening behind her? I'm, I'm assuming with a pregnancy it'd be a doozy too, but at least that's in front of you, so you're like physically like looking at it. But like a fake booty behind you, I don't know. I'm sure she's knocked out a couple children or two who are booty height. You know, booty height is pretty much like just short enough to not go on the coaster. Anywho, when a crowd doesn't respond, that's probably our best dovetail that we've ever done. When a crowd doesn't respond, I try to just take a breath. And at the, it, you know, the best case scenario is you're just like, you go on to a joke that they, that they, you know, they will respond to. But if you feel stuck, you just crowd work that shit, man. That's when you just decide to go in that crowd. How about you? What are you guys doing? You guys married? You're here as a couple? You, you know, you can... That has saved me many a time. Many a time. Because a lot of times when, you do, when the jokes aren't existing in you that night, the people will bring you the jokes. Because somebody going to say some dumb shit in that audience. And I've even had a situation where a girl in the audience was so dumb, she decided to come on stage. Her name was Stephanie. You can look at my Instagram. Next question. You're so gorgeous. Oh, that's not a question. That's a fact. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Next question. What are your insights on recalibrating? I think at every echelon of public persona, there's this homeostatic level of being, quote unquote, on, so to speak. Constant awareness of influence, recognition, and leveraging of the platform, etc. But how do you sustain it, for one? Secondly, how does one smoothly take off the hats and breathe a damn minute and regroup without losing traction or consistency in that public capacity? This is a fame question, too, but I think as a comic it, it relates because sometimes people really expect you to just be funny at all times. You know, just be funny, funny, funny. I think it was really interesting if you listen to the interview with me and Roy. Um, it gets unfunny. It gets unfunny because being a comedian is not about, like, being funny all the time. I hate when, as a comic, people be like, so tell me a joke then. Like, you, gotta, you, gotta, you want me to invoice you? And if you want to be at a dinner party that's, like, not funny, invite a bunch of comedians over. It's going to get dark real fast. Real fast. But I know, like, for me, it's, um, it, it was actually me cognizantly choosing to live somewhere else. Like, I moved. And I moved somewhere where I really feel like I'm not cut off from things, but I'm safe in, like, my safe space. And I think, like, finding that happy medium was really necessary for me. Like, I didn't want to feel, like, all the way, like, just, you know, kind of like a hermit and just, um, 
isolated, but I also wanted to feel that when I went home, I wasn't still in the mix. And the next space from that is going to be getting some type of office space to work in so that I can truly, like, when I come home, be home and not always feel like work is hanging over my head. But I don't know if you ever really, really, really turn off. If you're a creative, it's always bubbling. I think for me, it shifts depending on what I'm working on. When I was working on the special, my brain was not really tuned to considering new material outside of what was already in the special. Whereas now I can feel my brain starting to now like have it have its palate cleansed and I'm starting to hear things differently again and starting to see things conceptually as jokes. Whereas for the last two months, I haven't really been in that space. And, you know, in, in the second part of your question, how do you do that without disconnecting from the people? You you know, you got to be cognizant of that. And it can mean like being really creative about the ways in which you do that. So a good example is like Smart, Funny and Black. We used to do Smart, Funny and Black every month in L.A., but we just can't do that anymore. We can't keep it up. And so we have to find ways to still keep it in the zeitgeist, to still keep it in the mix. And, you know, that's going to be with our merch. That's going to be with our masterclasses. That's going to be with our Instagram. And we're still going to be doing Smart, Funny, and Black shows, but the quantity is not going to be as voluminous as it was before. So we've had to find just other ways to still keep the essence and the art and the love of what we're doing still out there to connect with folks. And you can sign up for our newsletter at smartfunnyandblack.com so that you can know right when all these things are happening. The newsletter is the key to being the first one to know about merch dropping, to be the first one to know about tickets to a new show. So get on the good foot. But I think it's really important to just like understand that you're going to have to hire people too to be aware of these things as well. Because when all of this is overhead on you, it, it kills you. you. And I think, you know, the best part of being a comic is knowing that like you're going to have to live to find the funny. And forcing yourself to say, like, okay, it's fine. I don't have to, like, people already asked me about another special. And I'm like, what? I mean, that was special. And I don't want to do another special until I have something else special to give. Otherwise, it's just like I'm, you know, doing the special punch card. Do I get a free coffee at the end? Nah, that's how you get the fall off. Because you start delivering your, when you start delivering your art based on commerce, listen, it's a doozy. It fucks up the dynamic. So that was a great question. And I hope I answered it and gave it justice. How do you handle people who criticize you simply because they don't get your humor? Have you ever lost friends or lovers over your brand of humor? You like to say you're not for everyone. How has that played out in your personal life and has it adversely affected you or had you second-guess your, your instincts? Uh, when it relates to comedy, I mean, that was more liberating than anything because, I mean, I mean yeah, actually, shit, as a person, that was more liberating than anything because when you think that you have to please everybody, you cannot please everybody. So it's literally a, like, impossible effort that you are constantly chasing. Once you let go of that, and not just in like a, okay, I'm not for everybody, so I'm going to be a dick. But you let go of it in a way that says like, I'm going to consciously be my best person knowing that that may not be everybody's standard or that may not be it to everybody's pleasure. Like, you let yourself off the hook for not hitting everybody's mark. 
hit your mark. It's just that some of us have too low of a mark. You know what I mean? Some of y'all letting yourselves off too much of a hook. Your hook is mad, mad weak, B. You got flimsy ass hooks. You can't have a flimsy hook. All right? Nah. So, like, I, my hook is brolic. I got a strong, solid-ass hook. It's a granite hook, okay? It's made by titanium steel. It's the same shit they make the space shuttle out of. The same shit they made Lieutenant Dan's legs out of. So, titanium alloy hook is what we're all going for. And what does a titanium alloy look, look like? It looks like consideration. It looks like self-awareness. It looks like you make mistakes, but you work towards fixing them. And then you make the mistake again, and you still work towards fixing it. That's, That's the, the other thing, thing too. too. Like, sometimes we make mistakes, and then we fix it, and then we make the mistake Again, and then we fix it. Um, you know, we're human. It's it's not easy being this this way, but it is what it is. And you just try your best. It's really about just trying your best, trying your best, trying your best. And shit, I I know when I go into a comedy club that not everybody is gonna enjoy enjoy my humor, specifically because I don't do the kind of low ball humor that everybody enjoys. Like I, I mean, I just don't. I'm, do, I'm talking about political commentary. I'm talking stuff about being a woman. And that's just not everybody's cup of tea. And I think like the most general, the general stuff that people like is like if you talk about sex, you talk about kids, you talk about family. A, a lot of people can relate to that. But I'm not going to just talk about sex because I feel like there's a lot more things I want to address. I don't have kids. And my family consists of like me and my mom. So I just don't have those like di general dynamics to speak to. But I haven't lost, I don't think I've lost friends because of my humor. I think I've lost friends because of my standards. And because, you know, you just can't have certain people in your space anymore because they don't have the same standards. I've lost coworkers or I've lost creative partners because we have different metrics of excellence. You know, because we have different quality control. And when you hold them accountable to that, they feel some type of way. You know, people love for you to, they, they always want you to be polite when telling them that they are absolutely not doing what they said they were going to do. They want you to be as nice as possible when letting them know that they're treating you like shit. And that is something I don't do. So you lose friends for that. But as far as my comedy losing me friends, as far as my sense of humor losing me friends, I definitely remember I had a publicist back when I was in New York who was like, you know, people are saying you're a bitch because you're sarcastic. So you should really look into that. And I was like, Actually, I should just look into not hanging around people who can't understand sarcasm. Because a lot of times if you if you're if you're saying that, it's because we're just not on the same wavelength comedy-wise. But for you to say I'm a bitch, it's just like that's excessive. And that just means that you're a shitty ass person. And you're telling it to my publicist. And my publicist is telling it to me. And that made her a bitch. Cause who does that? You know, I mean, that's when you say to somebody like, oh, you just don't understand Amanda's humor. You know, she's not intending to, to offend, but she just finds things funny in a way that comes out as sarcasm. So, no, I'm not going to change. And what comedy did for me, though, was it actually brought me people. It brought me people that understood me. It brought me people that could relate to me because I realized that I wasn't a misanthrope. I was a comic. <laughs> You know, what, what seemed mean to people who weren't comedians was witty to those who were. And the reality is, like, a lot of people who are funny are smart. And when you're smart and you're aware, that can make a lot of people uncomfortable who aren't. 
And so it's not that they're saying that they're that you're mean. It's not even that you're mean. You're just disrupting their peaceful ignorance. And that's what I choose to do with my comedy. The last dose. These were actually really dope questions. And I mean, I kind of want to do a... I feel like you guys asked so many more questions that I would want to do like an Instagram live about it. But I will say this, you know, there is no like, I, you can't say there's a right or wrong way to be a comic. You know, I mean, what I love about comedy is that like, there's no like, uh, it's very clearly distinct in terms of the compliments that you get. It's funny. There's no like, I like the tone. I like the, it's like, it's funny. It gets more nuanced into like, why is it funny and what are you doing in the midst of it? But the reality is, is that like when you're doing music, people will come up with all type of shit. I really appreciated your energy, you know, like the tonality of your voice had an energy about it that really made me feel connected to the material in an exciting way that understood the cadence of it. Could I sing? Like, did you fucking like the song or not? That's what I love about comedy. Like, it's not all of that. That shit was funny. I came off stage when I opened for Chris Rock and he said that shit was funny. Nah, for real. That shit was funny. That's it. That's all you need. That's all you need. And I mean, I think that that's what it has to come down to. The biggest lesson I learned that I think made me turn the corner with my comedy was finding out that I didn't have to convince the audience I was funny. I am funny. Some nights I'm going to hit it. Sometimes I'm not. Not because I'm not funny. It's because I haven't perfected the material I'm using to demonstrate that funny. And if you can kind of get to that place, you give yourself a little more patience with your material. Being funny and writing is not like an easy thing. That's why the stand-up comedy shit, that's why I don't fuck with people lose, using the term comedian all loosey-goosey. Because being a stand-up is not for the faint of heart. You don't have any tools in your tool belt. Like, there's no pageantry. I don't have, I can't put on some pyrotechnics. I can't drop a beat. I can't cue the dancers. Cue the dancers! You know, it's just, that, and that's why with my special, I kept it real basic. Like, I just, um, I just really tried to, originally I was going to do all type of shit where I was going to do all this stuff with the set and all this craziness. And I was like, you know what? Blue curtain, stool, mug, jokes. Keep it basic. Because if you can do that, then you're doing something. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time.